Good morning. Question I want to begin with this morning is this Will I make it to the end? As Christians, uh, this is a question that at one point or another, all of us have asked, will I make it to the end? We, we all know people who have not made it to the end, and the question is, will I uh, make it to the end? I'm speaking about the end of the Christian life, and if I will make it to the end faithfully, will I faithfully stay in his word all the way till the end? Will I faithfully uh, be here a, a, as a member of a local church all the way till the end? Will I stay faithful on his mission to make disciples and to share his gospel all the way to the end? Will I make it faithfully as a Christian all the way to the end of my life? See, we all know people who have bolted away from the faith. There, there was a, a, a church split. There was a church fight. There was some kind of disagreement over uh, theology, philosophy, uh, you name it. Some type of infighting in the church. Somebody got their feelings hurt. Maybe there was even uh, abuse by, by leadership. And, and they just, they, they were walking with the Lord. They were in the church. They were faithful. But something happened and they just bolted away never to return. And so the question is, Will that be me? Will that happen to me? Others we know maybe didn't bolt away from the church, uh, but, but they kind of slowly drifted out and away. They missed a Sunday here. They missed a community group there. They stopped going to this Bible study. A month goes by and they don't darken the doors of a church. Then two months, then two years then, then come uh, more kids, then come a promotion at work, then life gets more busy, more hectic, and years and years and years go by, um, and, and because of their disconnection from the church, they slowly stop reading their Bible, they, they slowly stop having a consistent prayer life. Oh sure, they might shoot up a prayer to the big guy upstairs every now and then, or, or when they're feeling extra low, maybe run and read a Proverbs or, or a Psalm to make themselves feel better, but, but to say they're faithful would be far from the truth truth. So some bolt away from the church, others slowly just kind of stop coming and, and, and are disconnected from God and his people. And so the question is, will that be me? Will I be one of those people? This question becomes even more terrifying when you look at the opposition that we face. When you understand the fullness of the storm that we're in the middle of and, and what it means to be a Christian. I mean, we're, we're facing our own weak desires. We're facing the world and the devil, right? This is the, the three great terrors. The three great threats of every Christian would be flesh, the world, the devil. We say flesh, we mean our, our sinful desires. So, so the flesh, the world, the devil is mounting attacks on us so that we don't make it to the end. So, so those attacks will be physical. The, the doctor may say it's cancer. There, you, you might be in a, in, a, in a car wreck, right? So, so those type of attacks may come and, and it may drive you away from the church. Th those attacks may be emotional. You, you may just get in a season of depression and just not feel like coming to church, not feel like communing with the Lord or his people. So you, you may get in a season where you just don't feel like God's there. So, so the attacks may be physical, the attacks may be emotional, the, the attacks may be relational, where, where family members are saying to you, why are you spending so much time at that church? 
Why, why do you hang out with those people? You're not giving your money to that, are you? You don't really believe that stuff, do you? So, so the, the attacks are mounting on us against us so that we don't make it to the end. So, so there's emotional attacks, there's relational attacks, physical attacks, financial attacks, loss of a job, loss of benefits. I mean, the, the attacks are mounting from all sides for us to not walk with the Lord. We are swimming upstream. We learned last week something even more terrifying, that the greatest attack is yet to come, that is the Antichrist himself. The man of lawlessness is going to come with great signs and wonders. There's gonna be a great time of tribulation. So with, with all of that said, I mean, who in here can, can confidently say, I know I'm gonna make it? So, with this kind of attack and pressure, how will any of us make it? This question becomes increasingly more terrifying if you believe what the Bible says, that we will stand before the Lord and we will give an account. And he will either say, well done, good and faithful, or he will say, away from me, I never knew you. The water seems too deep, the current seems too strong, the storm seems too fierce, and there might be a feeling in the room right now that we just might as well give up. But friends, when it seems like there is no hope, there is hope in the word of God, amen? When it seems like there's no hope in your marriage, when it seems like there's no hope at your job, when it seems like there's no hope in your life at all, there is hope to be found in God's word. It is where we run to for our source of hope, our source of meaning, joy, and life, because that's where Christ is to be found in these very words. And he is our hope, he is our joy, he is our meaning. So when it seems like there's no way we're gonna make it to the end of this Christian life faithfully, we've seen so many people go by the wayside, we've seen so many people walk away from the church, we can walk in hope and joy knowing that we will endure to the end. There is a way to have a confidence in an enduring faith. And so you wanna talk about um, a, a people who were worried about making it to the end, that is the Thessalonian church. That, that's these people. They were worried whether or not their faith was going to endure through all the things that they had to endure through. Their money was being taken from them. They were being uh, violently beaten and persecuted for their faith. They were wondering if the day of the Lord had already come. There was false teaching, false doctrine. There was so much stuff going on in this church. And you can imagine they're wondering if they're going to make it to the end, if they're going to stay faithful to Jesus. And so Paul writes them to encourage them, to let them know that there is a way for them to have enduring faith. I mean, we know, we looked at it last week. Chapter two begins uh, with, with asking them, urging them. Uh, chapter two, verse two, he says this, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word. They, they were shaken and alarmed. And so he's writing to let them know, to encourage them, to comfort them that they can have an enduring faith. Paul wants these believers to have a sturdy, stable, and strong faith. He wants them to have an enduring faith. This is his aim. He is saying all this on the heels of telling them that it's going to get really, really bad. Do you guys remember that from last week? They were wondering if the day of the Lord had come. They were wondering if Jesus had already returned. And he said, oh, no, no, no. Uh, we can know Jesus hasn't come back yet because it's gonna get a lot worse. 
So, so he's telling them it's going to get really, really bad. He's saying this, all this on the heels of saying it's going to get bad. But far from being freaked out in a panic, far from saving up ammo and canned goods, Paul is cool as a cucumber and he ends up telling them to stand firm. He says, it's going to get really bad. The man of lawlessness is going to come. Things are going to blow up. It's going to be terrible, but stand firm. Shouldn't he say, it's going to get really bad. The Antichrist is coming. Run and hide. No, he doesn't say run and hide. He says, stand firm. Just look at the the verse we're going to be looking at today. Verse 15, so then brothers, stand firm and hold on to the traditions you you were taught by us. Stand firm, hold on. It's going to get terrible, but stand firm and hold on. So here's the question we will be looking at today. Here's the question we'll be working on today as we move through our text. Here's the question. Where does the confidence for an enduring faith come from? We talked about the world, the flesh, the devil, all those attacks coming at us. We've seen Paul just said it's going to get a lot worse. So how can we have confidence for an enduring faith that we'll make it to the end, that we won't be among the long list of people who have bolted from the church or slowly left the church, ceased being faithful to God? How can we have confidence that we will make it to the end? That's the question we'll be looking at today. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. If you don't have this text open in front of you, please do so. Let's start in verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He opens this section by saying, we ought always. This is the second time he has used this phrase, we ought to do something. Um, He he said that at the very beginning in uh, 2 Thessalonians Chapter one, verse three, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. He says the exact same thing again here in chapter two in verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. He he has this obligation inside of him to thank God for when he is working. We often think of obligations as being bad things. Oh, I I can't come to the party. Uh, I I have a previous obligation. But this obligation is a great obligation because God is at work in the lives of the people of Thessalonica. And so he's saying, I am obligated to thank God for what he's doing. Friends, let our hearts be burdened in that same way to to be obligated to thank God for his blessings in your life. God, thank you for the financial blessings you've given me. Thank you for my family. Thank you for loving me, for saving me, for changing me. We should feel this obligation to constantly be thanking God for who he is and what he's done, amen? So what exactly is he so thankful for? What is he feeling obligated to thank God about? 
Well, it's here in the text. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. So what is he feeling obligated to God to be thankful for? That he saved them. He is thankful that the, the God of the universe, who is totally sovereign over all things everywhere, chose to act to save them. God chose to save these people from sin, from death, from Satan, from demons, to a family, to joy, save them to a life, save them to foreverness with him. So he chose to save them from something, Satan, death, demons, destruction, wrath, to something which is life with his family, life with his people, meaning, purpose, joy, and mission. This is what God has chosen to do, to save them, and Paul is really excited about this. So, by a cursory reading of the text, who is doing the saving? But we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. So here in this text, you see God the Father, you see the word Lord, which is Jesus, how he is often referred to, and the Spirit. So what we see in this text is a Trinitarian act of God to save his people. Father, Son, Spirit. This is the Father in eternity past electing his chosen people, then sending the Son to come and live the life we could not live, die the death we could not die in our place for our sins, and then the Holy Spirit then applying that saving grace to the life of the believer. This is a Trinitarian act of God to save his people. Are y'all still with me? Okay, now. Who is doing the choosing? It is the Trinitarian Godhead who is doing the choosing. The reason that God is the one who is doing the choosing is because if he does not choose us, we would never choose him. Romans chapter 3 says that no one seeks after God. All have gone astray. What happened at the fall is that sin entered into the world and it crushed, broken, and distorted the will of man so that he would never seek after God. Now, I know that is contrary to many of our experiences as we, um, as we experience salvation, as we experience saving faith, because we have this thought in our mind that, well, I wanted to go check out Christianity or I wanted to give church a try, and so I chose to follow Christ. And that is absolutely true, but you cannot choose to follow Christ unless Christ has chosen you first. So... What is happening here? Well, God is choosing them to be saved. Who is doing the saving? Who is doing the choosing? It is God himself who is doing this, okay? So he is not choosing that they may be saved or that they would have the possibility to be saved. This is God's definite choice that this will happen. This is a huge contrast from verse 10 in this same chapter. Let your eyes shift up to verse 10. It says this, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Here in verse 13, it says that the God chose them to be the first fruit so that they could be saved. 
This is a contrast from verse 10. In verse 10, you have people who did not love God, did not love the truth, and therefore could not be saved. In verse 13 and 14, you have a group of people who do love God, who do love the truth, and are saved. And that was by God's choice to set his love upon them and to love them. God is choosing for you that you will love and trust and therefore be saved. God is the deciding factor for an individual's salvation. Now, this does not mean that God looked down the corridor of time and in some future uh, instance saw that you would choose him and therefore he chose you. Here's why it can't be that way. It can't be that way because the text clearly says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. If God looks down the corridor of time and sees that you choose him, and based on you choosing him, chooses you, that's not God choosing. That's God affirming your choice. In addition, the reason that God has not chosen you based on your choosing of him is because that would be merit and we would no longer be saved by grace. You would be saved by a work that you did, choosing him. But we believe we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, amen? So Paul is really excited about this. He, he is so happy and thanking God that he chose them. Now, it says, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Look at what's next. Through sanctification. Now, here's what you need to understand about salvation. Um, when it comes to salvation, there is a, is a way that the scripture talks about it, that you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Here's another way to say it. Um, as a Christian, you are perfectly saved. As you grow in Christ, you are progressively being saved because you are learning to, by God's grace, sin less and become more like Christ. And one day when God returns with his forever kingdom, you will be perfectly saved. So we are presently saved, justified, declared righteous, clean, pure, holy before God. You are presently saved. You are also progressively being saved as you learn to walk with him, as you learn to trust him more. And one day when Christ returns with his forever kingdom, you will perfectly be saved. So here he is saying God chose you to be saved through sanctification as he continues to draw you in closer and closer to himself, making you more like him until the day that you will perfectly be saved. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. They believed the truth because God had taken the scales off of their eyes so that they could see the truth, so that they could know the truth. This is that when God chooses someone, he sets his love upon them and then they unfailingly come to him as if um, we are plunged up underneath the water and then as our head uh, comes up out of the water, we immediately take a big <gasps> breath. It's what naturally happens. And it's the same way as the Holy Spirit comes into the life of an unbeliever, removes the scales from their eyes, gives them a picture of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. They unfailingly then want to love him, serve him, follow him, choose him, and believe the truth. 
This is an amazing thing that Paul is thanking God for. So how did it happen? Look at verse 14. To this, he called you. So how does a believer become saved? Well, in eternity past, God elected his children to save them. They are saved through the Holy Spirit, believing the truth. And how it happens is they hear the call. This is what verse 14 says. To this, he called you. So we believe there is a general call that goes out everywhere to everyone. This is how uh, Paul in uh, Romans can say that everyone is without excuse, okay? No, no one is without excuse. So there is a general gospel call that goes out to everyone everywhere to believe. But there is an effective call that then goes to God's elect, his children, in hearing this great gospel message. The Holy Spirit, again, makes them alive, regenerates them, and because they are now spiritually alive, they can choose to follow Christ. So how does this great thing happen? Well, they're called. How did you get your call if you're a Christian? Do you, do you remember? Were you sitting in a coffee house when, when someone shared the gospel with you? Were you sitting in, in church and, and finally, it, it finally broke through? I know for me, I, I, I grew up in church and I heard this gospel message a hundred times before it ever actually made sense to me. It, it never made sense. I, I, I couldn't make heads or tails of the thing uh, in, until I was in Daytona Beach, Florida at a youth camp. There was a bald-headed guy up on stage. He was, the, he was the youth guy. He was yelling about how much Jesus loved me and wanted to save me from my sins. I had shown up at that youth camp to meet girls and, and you know, sneak out and you know, do God knows what. But at that moment, something happened in my heart. Now, from my perspective... I chose to follow Christ. I said, that's me. I want to do that. Today, I'm going to choose Jesus. And I went down front, raised my hand, signed the card, did the whole thing. But the theological perspective and the biblical perspective is in that moment, God was choosing me. God was removing the scales from my eyes. God was taking my dead heart and making it alive. God was choosing my stony heart and turning it into a heart of flesh. This is exactly the same thing as Lazarus is in the tomb. Jesus shows up to the tomb and gives the call. Um, in that moment, Lazarus in no way could have chosen to come out of the tomb. Uh, it, it didn't matter if um, they, they played Amazing Grace a hundred times. It didn't matter if, if they you know, begged and pleaded, come on, Lazarus, we really want you to come out. It, it, it didn't matter if his mom asked him to come out. It didn't matter. If, it didn't, doesn't matter. Jesus had to be the one to show up and give that call. Lazarus, come out. And in that moment, he was made alive and then came out. This is how salvation happens. Again, this is a monergistic view of salvation. This is what our church believes the Bible teaches, a monergistic view of salvation. Here is the picture. The picture is humanity is in a sea of sin, swimming straight down towards the bottom in rebellion from God. God reaches into that sea and snatches you out of it by himself. A monergistic or mono, meaning one, a monergistic motion of God reaching into a sea of sin and snatching out his children. Upon breaking the water, they take a big gasp of air. They see Jesus. They're really excited and they choose to follow him and love him. 
This is different than a synergistic view, which says that humans are in a sea of sin and Jesus is reaching out his hand. And if only you would reach up and grab his hand, then he would pull you out. That is a synergistic view, which our church does not believe the Bible teaches. We believe the Bible teaches a monergistic view of salvation. Paul here in this verses 13 and 14 gives an incredibly succinct view of soteriology. There you go. There's your $3 word for the day. Everyone say soteriology. Okay. It has ology on the end. We know that means the study of the beginning part means salvation. So this is the study of salvation. Paul here gives a succinct view of soteriology or biblical soteriology or the Bible's understanding of how salvation works. Okay. So In the beginning, step one, God elects his children, his chosen ones. Step two, they hear the gospel call, they are regenerated, and then they are justified. Okay? Now, this is an amazing thing for Paul to thank God for. Verse 14 again, to this, he called you through our gospel. So the critique of this view of soteriology is if God elects and saves people, why bother preaching the gospel? Why bother sharing that we don't even need evangelism anymore? If God is the one who chooses and saves people, then why do we share? Why do we tell? Why do we do anything at all? Well, it says right here, verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel. This is how God chose to save and elect them. This is how God chose to bring them to saving faith. It was through the preaching of the apostle Paul and his band of missionaries. So far from being uh, an evangelism crusher, this is the foundation for us to go out into the world and proclaim this gospel because God has more elect out there. How do I know that? Because he hasn't returned yet. So there's more people out there who need to hear the gospel. Now listen, uh, if they're elect or chosen, they don't have t-shirts that say elect on it. We don't know who they are. So we share the gospel with everybody. So as the gospel is preached, the elect and chosen have the scales removed from their eyes. Dead hearts come to life, just like Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones as Ezekiel stood there in that great valley where a war had happened and there was bones scattered all over that valley and God said to him, preach to those dry bones. And he preached and those dry bones came to life through the power of God. You have to see, okay, listen, I'm a preacher and I do this for a living. Um, I understand how weak and feeble this is what I'm doing. But isn't it, the way our God works to use the weak things of the world to shame the wise, to to use a fool like me to proclaim his word, to see people's lives changed. This is God using his preaching to call his children. And to what end is all of this aiming? So what's happening here? They're being saved. Who's doing the choosing? God is. How did they do it? Through the gospel call. To what end? God, don't miss this last part. I'm back in verse 14. To this, he called you through our gospel so that, here's the end, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. That's the end of this whole thing. God loves you. 
He called you, he saved you, he brought you from death to life, regenerated your heart, brought you into this Christian life. He's gonna keep on holding on to you. He's gonna hang on to you, whether you hang on to him or not. He's not letting you go. And he's gonna carry you all the way to the end so that you obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. On that great day, you'll be dressed in white. Why is that significant? Because it means that you are pure, clean, and holy before God. You obtain that glory, that, that robe of white, that relationship with God. That's what you obtain. That's the end goal of this whole thing. It's beautiful, beautiful what we see here. Here's the point. Confidence for an enduring faith comes from God himself. If you're taking notes, jot this down. We can have a strong confidence in the stability of our faith because it was established by a rock solid God. We can have confidence in the stability of our faith. I'm gonna keep walking with him. I'm gonna keep loving him. I'm gonna keep serving him. Why? Because he established the faith that I'm walking in. How can you know whether or not a house is sturdy? Ask who the builder is. How can you know if a, if a bridge is, is secure or not? Ask who is the engineer. If you wanna know whether or not your faith is sturdy, ask who is the one who gave you or built that faith for you? If it is God himself, isn't your faith rock solid? So Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking to Jesus, this is incredible. Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder of, and perfecter of our faith. Who's the builder of our faith? Who's the founder? Who's the perfecter? How can we know we're gonna have enduring faith all the way to the end? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, friends, if my salvation is something I have done couldn't I then just undo it? So if I am the determining factor in my salvation, I could just decide not to be saved. But good theology, good doctrine will say, once saved, always saved. And at the heart of that doctrine is God's sovereign choice. So this is what we believe God is a loving father who holds on to us even if we let him go. The question is never, can a Christian lose their salvation? It's, can God lose a Christian? The answer is no. God does not lose Christian. I have a, a young daughter um, who loves her mom. Loves, she is a mama's girl through and through. And oftentimes when I pick her up, she will not hold on to me she will reach out for her mom. She will arch her back. Then, yeah. Do I then say, okay, that's what you want? Fine. What type of father would I be if I dropped my daughter on the kitchen floor? <laughs> a bad one. But God is a loving father and he hangs on to us even when we kick, even when we scream, even when we're doing dumb things and saying dumb things. He's saying, you're mine. I love you. I'm not letting you go. Now, let me address a few hesitations people have with this view of soteriology before we move on. People think that this doctrine, 
the doctrine of election or the doctrine of election and reprobation. That is, reprobation is the passing over of those who are not his elect. They believe this makes God mean. When they say mean, they mean unjust. And if God is unjust, then he is not a God worthy to be worshiped or followed or even believed in because God must be just in order to be God. If he's not just, he can't be God. So they believe this doctrine makes God mean or unjust. How can God choose to save some and not choose to save others? This makes him very mean, capricious. Uh, he, he is, um, again, he, he becomes the, the God in the sky who uh, you know, has, has the magnifying glass and he's ready to like burn the ants and we're the ants and you know, he's gonna keep some ants and burn the other ones with the magnifying glass because he's just a big bully, okay? Um, that is uh, some people's view of this doctrine. The reason that is untrue, this is not unjust because man's choice is to rebel against God. All men everywhere have rejected God. So the just thing for God to do would be to punish those sinners. Who are the sinners? Everyone everywhere. (laughs) So this is not unjust. This is actually a gracious thing that God would do that he would save or elect anyone. So God is not unjust for choosing to love and save some. After all, it is his universe, it is his world, it is his humanity, his creation. He can do with it as he pleases because he's God and he is not unjust in doing so. So, but I thought I had free will. This is another uh, objection to this doctrine when we say uh, God chooses to save some, okay? Um, I thought I had free will and I get to choose God. That, that's how this thing works. The problem is uh, you don't have free will. Now, that is a shock to some, um, but here's the thing. Can I choose to be the fastest man in the world? Okay, been watching the Olympics, Usain Bolt. Anybody seen that guy? Yeah. Incredible. Right now, can I make the choice to be the fastest man in the world? The answer is no. Therefore, my will is limited then. Free will means the choice to choose and do anything. I can't choose to be, uh, you know, muscle bound and eight foot tall. I'm sorry. I wish I could. That'd be awesome. But I can't. And so therefore, my will is limited. So the question is, in what way is my will limited? My will is limited by sin. Again, this is the problem. It, it crushed and distorted the will of man, and man cannot choose to follow God. It is impossible. Again, Romans 3 says, No one seeks God. So we have a limited will and your will has been broken by sin in such a way that you will never choose Christ unless he chooses you first. Humanity has a limited will and humanity will always choose rebellion unless God regenerates them. Now, there are many other objections I could talk through. If you have those, please feel free to come and talk to me about them. If you have questions about this doctrine, please feel free to come and talk to me. Let's move on. As Christians, we believe God is in control. Amen? God's in control. This is a statement of faith. This is a part of what all Christians believe. Um, So why do we get so gun-shy when it comes to salvation? (laughs) We believe God's in control of everything everywhere. Amen? Amen. Including your salvation. Ooh, no, not that. I would like to say that because I want to have the illusion that I'm in control. The truth is God is in control of everything, everywhere, including salvation. Listen to John 15, 16. It says this, you, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. You did not choose me, I chose you 
Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as the sons through Jesus Christ, according to pursuit of his will. Romans 8, 30, and those whom he predestined, that is predestined to salvation, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. How were they born? How did they become saved? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here's the point. While this doctrine troubles the mind, let it comfort your heart. Look back at verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God. That This doctrine is grounded in the love of God. If you're taking notes, jot this down. God's sovereign choice in our salvation is far from a mean, unloving thing for God to do. It is an act grounded in love meant to give us the assurance of an enduring faith. That's the doctrine of election. It, it is given to us so that we go, I know God loves me. I know God saved me. I know he's never gonna let me go. Therefore, I will have enduring faith all the way to the end. Now, some might say, well, I know some who say they had faith, seemed to be Christians, but they walked away never to return. And it seems as if God had let them go or they didn't have enduring faith. Uh, we would look to the epistles of John where John says, they went out from us because they were never of us. So we would say of those people who leave and never come back to God's family, uh, they were never actually truly saved because those who are truly saved, God never lets go of and they endure to the end. Okay. So here's the good news. If you've blacked out for the last 20 minutes, here's the good news. Let the armies of hell attack the weakest of Christians. Let the world throw at us everything that it has and our faith will endure to the end. That's the good news. That's the good news, friends, is that what this doctrine means is that Satan can do his worst. The world can do its worst and our faith will endure to the end. That's the good news about this. We can know, we can have an enduring faith. Unsafe, unstable circumstances, weakness in our own character, don't fear. A rock-solid God has saved you and will keep your faith enduring. Amen? Amen. So, if that's the case, what's our job? Sit back and do nothing, right? God's got our faith. Uh, he has grounded our faith. He's going to endure our faith. God's going to keep us going. So let's all get, uh, you know, take a long nap, eat a ham sandwich, and do nothing. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, look at verse 15. So then, based on what he just said about God saving you, keeping you, doing the whole thing for you, based on that, so then, verse 15, so then, brothers, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So the answer is not to do nothing at all. This is a paradox for sure, but it is not a contradiction. God's got the whole thing, so stand firm, right? So 
there are two commands here. Do you see the two commands? So then, brothers, stand firm, that's one, and hold on. This is um, the idea that you are in the middle of a hurricane, a raging storm, or, or you are up to your waist in flood water, and you need to do two things. One, you need to have your feet firmly planted, and you need to be tightly hanging on to something because the storm is so fierce, the, the river is raging uh, so rapidly. So you need to do both of those things. You gotta plant your feet and, and clutch with your hands. Um, in, in the same way, maybe you guys have never been in a hurricane uh, or you know, raging floodwaters. You've been to the airport, right? The train is now leaving the station. Please hold on, right? If you've been on that train at the Atlanta airport, you know when it says the train is leaving the station, you better have your feet firmly planted and hang on to one of those rails, right? You, you, you've seen the young college guys try to stand you know, and do it and they end up like you know, falling over. You, you, you need to have your feet planted and hanging on to that rail because the train is leaving the station. Th this is what he is saying our posture needs to be, a posture of standing and clinging. The question is, what is it that we are to stand in and cling to? Well, he answers that question for us. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Now, um, for us being admittedly a more non-traditional church, we might read that word and go, ew. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. These traditions are not later traditions that the church came up with. These are the true teachings and traditions that came from the apostles themselves who learned them from Jesus Christ. So for a church like us, I, I think it's important to say that church traditions aren't all bad. There are good church traditions as long as they're biblical traditions. Okay, so, so we uh, stand for the reading of the word, don't we? That's, that's our tradition. That's something that, that we did at the beginning uh, of our church, and, and that's our tradition, and I hope we keep that tradition. But I hope we never elevate that tradition as a mark of holiness. So as if you go to another church, and the preacher just gets up there and starts rolling, you go, oh, they didn't stand for the reading of the word. How unsanctified. So church traditions are good if they're biblical, but we must never elevate them to a position of holiness. So some church traditions might say, hey, you gotta wear you know, khaki pants, you gotta button your shirt and tuck it in, and you better have a King James version of the Bible. And, and they might take that and elevate that to a position of holiness. We would never do that. We would say, you gotta wear jeans and boots and you know, carry an ESV. If you don't do that, then you're not holy. right? We, we can never take our culture, our, again, traditions, and elevate them to a place of holiness but that is absolutely not what he's talking about here. What is it that he is talking about? Look back at it again. The traditions that you were taught by us, that is the apostolic teaching, this band of apostles that Jesus Christ taught and he called them specifically, gave this group an apostolic title and said, I want you guys to be the teachers and the litmus test for all other truth that comes after. So Paul is urging them to stand in and hold on to the Bible. Listen to this. To resist false teaching, we must cling to true teaching. This is my part in my enduring faith. So 
It's not as if God does it all, God's done everything, so I sit around and do nothing. Here is my part in my enduring faith. My part in my enduring faith is I need to constantly be renewing my mind with the truth of God, reading, studying, meditating on, and memorizing the Bible. This is a part of my enduring faith. As, as the world comes in and tries to tell me that the Bible is an old antiquated book that needs to be brought into modern times, I can go back to it and read it and it says that is not true, that this is the enduring word of God and that it's always true in and out of season, no matter what's going on, the Bible is true, but I need to constantly be redoing my mind so that I'm enduring in my faith. This is the part that I play. I don't know if you saw this or not, but here's another key part of this text. Verse 13, uh, again, uses this word, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Look at 15. So then, brothers, this book is slam-packed with this word. This is the word for brothers and sisters. He is writing to who? a church filled with brothers and sisters, filled with church members. So he's saying, so then brothers stand firm. This standing firm and holding on to God's word is not a solo act. He's saying brothers do this together. Brothers and sisters hang on to God's word together. Brothers and sisters stand firm in God's word together. Brothers and sisters read the Bible together. Brothers and sisters memorize the Bible together, meditate on the Bible together, but you gotta do it together. This is not a solo act. This is not something where you're a Lone Ranger Christian out there doing it all by yourself. So if we are going to have an enduring faith and keep on going, we gotta get around people who keep us going. You remember that gym membership that you went and got? <laughs> yeah, you were so excited. You went and bought the workout clothes, got brand new shoes, did the whole thing. Like, man, here I go. Gold's gym, get ready, boy. I'm about to tear you up. You went one time, went another time. Something came up, you didn't go. You know, missed a month. Six months later, you're, you're not going at all and still getting the bill. I, that's only happened to me. I'm, I'm only telling my story. But here's the crazy thing. Um, there, there's this phenomenon going, sweeping the nation called CrossFit. And the difference is they're in a room together being held accountable. And when you don't show up, the people from CrossFit call you and say, hey man, we're supposed to be working out, right? There, there's, there's this thing about doing stuff together with people that brings us together and keeps us going on and moves us forward. In the same way, God is saying, that we're not to do this alone. So I think that you can summarize all God is asking us to do in this. We need to know the Bible and share life with others. That, that's it. This is what God is calling us to, to be. He's calling us to know the Bible. Stand, cling. And he's calling us to share our life with other people. Brothers and sisters, do this together. Know the Bible and share life with others. So if you're taking notes, jot this down. Enduring faith is possible because God saved you and keeps you, and we participate by knowing the Bible and sharing life with others. This is how our faith keeps on enduring, by renewing our mind with God's word, and we keep going by getting around other people who'll keep us going.
verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul closes out this section after giving this exhortation. He closes out this section with the prayer. So he gives this beautiful statement, this doctrinally sound, um, amazing statement about God's saving grace for us. He then follows that up with an exhortation. That exhortation is to stand and hang on to, do this thing together. And then he follows it up with this great with this great prayer that God would comfort your hearts, verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Again, note the equality of Jesus with God the Father. Strikingly, Paul lists him before God the Father and then goes on to attribute the work of loving and giving comfort to both of them because they are equal. That's a rabbit trail, I'm now coming back. His prayer is that God would comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work. So this week I was thinking, why does he pray that? Maybe, maybe he's getting at something. Maybe he's not just throwing out a random prayer. Again, this is the holy inspired word of God, right? So I thought his prayer should be, dear God, uh, please protect them and help them not to suffer. But he doesn't pray that. Again, because the Bible has a radically different understanding of suffering than most of us do. Uh, suffering is used by God to mature us and grow us, and it's actually a tool of God to, for blessing in our life. Um, but, but he doesn't pray that they would not suffer. That's not to say he's not praying that somewhere else. But here he has a specific goal in mind. He wants God to comfort their hearts because they are suffering. He doesn't ask for them not to suffer. He wants their hearts comforted during the suffering, but he wants them established in every good word and work. And so why? But why does he pray this? Why is he asking for God to establish them in good works? Or why is he wanting them to help them produce more fruit? Why is he praying for good works and, and fruit. So when we say good works or, or fruit, uh, we mean inward personal growth, showing um, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, service to the church, sharing your faith, right? Why is he wanting them to grow in good works and fruit? Well, because Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you are connected to me, you will produce fruit or good works, and then from that, we know Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So their good works or their fruit is evidence that God is at work in their life. And if God is working in their life, he's going to see that work all the way through to completion, meaning enduring faith. 
evidence for that enduring faith. The, the evidence that your faith will endure is you growing in Christ, in you growing in those fruits of the Spirit, in, in that you are serving other people in your community group, in, in that you're loving the people um, at your work who are lost, in, in, in that you are um, serving on the guest services team or, or serving back in the kids' ministry. That is evidence of good work that God is establishing in your life, and it's evidence of an enduring faith. So that's why he prays this for them. Again, last note to jot down. I can know my faith will endure when there is spiritual fruit in my life because he who began a good work will see it through to completion. So here's the whole sermon in one run-on long sentence like I enjoy to do. A strong and stable and enduring faith is grounded in God's decisive choice to save you and keep you, is built upon as we stand firm and hold on to the Bible in the context of a local church, and shows evidence for its existence in our good works. Amen? Amen. I'll close with this quote from John Stott, the great theologian. John Stott has this to say, let the devil mount his fiercest attack on the feeblest of saints. Let the Antichrist be revealed and the rebellion break out. Yet over against the instability of our circumstances and our character, we set the eternal stability of the purpose and will of God. Now, friends, that is something I can go out those doors and live for. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you show us that we can have an enduring faith, that we don't have to be another statistic. We don't have to be among those who have walked away from you, who have ceased to be faithful to you, those who have left the church, walked away from the faith, put down their Bibles, and ceased going in their prayer closets. God, we know that we can endure to the end. You have shown us the evidences for an enduring faith that you love us, that you're going to keep us. You ask us to stand in your word and, and cling to a group of people who can keep us going, all the while showing good works as evidence of our enduring faith. God, you didn't have to save any of us. You didn't have to set your love on any of us. You would have been holy, fully, completely just to send us all away, but you chose to set your love on some. And so, Lord, just as the Apostle Paul thanked you for your choosing. God, we thank you for that now. We thank you for electing us, for choosing us. Father, we pray for many more to come. God, would you draw your elect, would you draw your predestined chosen people to this church? Would you give us the strength and the courage to preach that gospel, that gospel call that goes out and see more and more people saved, more and more people knowing the Bible and sharing their lives with other people until the end when we obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, and we ask all these things in that same name, the name of Jesus. Amen.